Israel is not always fighting a war, but neither is it ever entirely at peace. Most recently, a battle was fought in Gaza against Palestinian Islamic Jihad, a terrorist group supported and instructed by the Islamic Republic of Iran. Soon after, Israel hit threatening Iranian military installations in Syria. To discuss Israel's strategy for battles and wars, present and future, I'm joined by General Jacob Nagel, a visiting fellow at FTD and a visiting professor at the Technion Aerospace Engineering Facility. In 2016 to 17, General Nagel served as head of Israel's National Security Council and as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's National Security Advisor. He also headed the Nagel Committee, which was responsible for Israel's decision to develop the Iron Dome Missile Defense System. Also with me is Jonathan Shanzer, FDD's Senior Vice President for Research, who has written extensively about the Middle East in general and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict in particular. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased you're with us here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the Jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Let's begin with Israel's most recent battle, which was in Gaza. There have been many battles in Gaza over the past 14 years since Israel withdrew from that territory. In 2014, there was a war with Israeli boots on the ground in Gaza and missiles in the skies over both Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. John and I were there for part of it. What's interesting this time, Hamas sat on the sidelines. Talk a little about who it is Israel fought this time and, and what happened in this particular battle. First of all, this uh, particular battle started with an opportunity that Israel took in order to uh, eliminate uh, a guy that was really uh, that really deserved uh, what he got because he was a ticking bomb, Abu al-Atta. He was responsible for most of the attacks that Israel had from Gaza uh, lately. Uh, he belonged to the uh, jihad, Islamic Jihad. It's a group, uh, not. Uh, Hamas, uh, it's a group more extreme than Hamas, and and this guy didn't really uh, listen to anything that uh, someone tried to uh, uh, manage him. So when the opportunity came, and Israel, uh, IDF, and uh, Shabak found an opportunity to take him out without having a collateral damage, without harming an innocent, or too many innocent because his wife was with him, uh, he was always using the what the FDD is calling the human shield. He was ev every time always full with children, women around him, so we couldn't take him off. This time we took him off, and this, of course, er of course, we knew we knew it erupted 
uh, an attack on Israel. And uh, these attacks, the Hamas decided from his reasons, because he don't want to escalate, not to be part of it. Israel made and really uh, managed this round very, very, very clever. It was isolated. It was uh, the other. But one thing that was also different from others, we used very accurate intelligence and air force, and we eliminated more than 10 uh, missile uh, groups while they were trying to uh, shoot those missiles against Israel. It is a very, very, very good uh, approved, uh, proved uh, capabilities of the state of Israel. Jonathan, you wanted to add to, to this. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there are a couple things to note from this most recent round of conflict. Usually, uh, Israel responds to an attack, right? It usually is a rocket attack by Hamas or some other jihadi group uh, in Gaza. And then what you see is Israel uh, taking out a number of different targets. And those targets are usually, um, they're banked. In other words, Israel collects this intelligence over time. What was different about this conflict was that Israel took the initiative first, um, sensing that it had, I guess, an opportunity here. Um, and that's what was, I think, a little bit different about it. The idea that uh, I think some have uh, put out there that Israel was the aggressor in this conflict, I think, is incorrect. Um, obviously, the Islamic Jihad has been firing on Israel for for uh, for quite some time. I and mean, this is an organization that's got blood on its hands for decades now. Uh, but Israel, I think, took an opportunity to make this a preemptive strike. And it was also coupled with a reported attack in Syria as well, another figure that was associated with Islamic Jihad, again, sponsored by Iran. And so uh, Israel took the initiative uh, in a preemptive fashion and then uh, picked off other targets from that bank over the course of several days. You know, one of the things I wanted to emphasize, and you suggested it, Jacob, is that uh, the, Isra the Israelis had seen this Pidge or Islamic Jihad commander, uh, Abu al-Atta, as provoking Israel over a long period of time, over years, but it, but as recently as as early November, and was pr and was probably doing so without Hamas's permission, without asking Hamas about that. And what was interesting here is, as I understand it from reporting I've seen from uh, from Israel, um, it is believed that that the Israelis went through Egypt and essentially communicated to Hamas, if you sit this out, we won't target you. Normally. We consider you rule this territory, you rule Gaza. Anything that happens from Gaza, you're responsible for. Maybe not in this case. Be, if, if that, we'll, we'll, we'll just go after a Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And a number of things happened. One is, as you say, it was a very precise strike, not just in terms of the neighborhood, not just in terms of the building, not just in terms of the room, but probably the bed in which he was sleeping in this pre-dawn dawn strike. So the, he's, the children in the next room were not killed, only those in that particular bed. That's really something quite extraordinary. I can see you, you want to weigh in here, yeah. but I, there are other points I think that are worth making on this. Go ahead. You, you are precisely on the point is that the killing of this guy was also sending a message. First of all, the quality of the intelligence that we have Second, a message to the dispatcher of this Islamic Jihad is Iran. Everyone that will raise his hand against Israel, against our civilians, his end is going to come. So, yes, you are right. A precise intelligence, a very, very, very sophisticated and precise munition, 
and as Jonathan just mentioned, a similar attack that no one took responsibility of, but everyone can understand what happens in uh, Syria, even so the target was not killed this time, maybe there will be another uh, opportunity. And the clear message is also to Iran, that is the patron of the Islamic Jihad in Gaza. Mm-hmm. And uh, we know that there was, I think, tension between Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad over this because of what happened when a Hamas official went to, I guess, essentially the wake for the commander for Abu al-Atta, and he got out of his car and he was he was pelted with stones. His car was pelted with stones. Anti-Hamas chants by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad supporters, and his bodyguards had to shoot bullets into the air uh, to and and hustle them back into the car and take off um, because this Palestinian Islamic Jihad supporters were so angry at Hamas for not supporting Pidge in this in this circumstance. That's right. Uh, there were at least two senior Hamas officials that uh, wanted to pay their respects in the morning tent, uh, but they were not welcomed. Uh, as I said on Twitter, jihad against Israel is a big tent until it isn't. Um, and, and this really does stem from the disagreement that came over um, uh, the decision to get involved in a war. Usually one would expect Hamas I mean, just to be clear, Hamas is also funded and armed and trained by Iran, uh, but it is in the unique position here of also having to run this territory, and that is not an easy thing. Electricity has been scarce. Uh, a lot of, of electricity comes from Israel, from Israel. we should note. That's, that's right. <laughs> Israel's most, at most war. Of that's most right. of electricity. That's and that's right. something you can know. They even, sometimes even during conflicts, that's Israel right. keeps yes. the electricity on. Now, it's not as much electricity as Gazans might like, but that's hard when you're in the midst of a conflict to well, expect your enemy to provide you with electricity and other services. All of the Israelis water, do. Everything. And water right. and but, but you medicine. have to understand that, yeah. that Hamas is, is to blame for a lot of this because it chooses to divert these resources to either their own people or to military ends, and the people are getting frustrated. And you know, it's no secret that terrorist organizations are not particularly good at governance. Hamas has certainly proven this to be the case. And in this particular instance, it did appear that Hamas uh, was trying to hold fire, uh, probably to just maintain calm and perhaps even to try to fulfill some of the agreements that has reached with Egypt and Israel uh, to try to maintain that calm informally. informally, uh, And again, this is not uh, a a permanent solution to the, the conflict. Hamas still seeks Israel's destruction, but it decided in this instance to sit it out for reasons that are still not entirely clear. Yeah. I, I, I urge you just one thing, not to make from Hamas a big Zionist after what happened here. It's, you know, some people also tend to to uh, invent things that didn't happen, and they call sometimes the world that I don't like the word frenemy. It's like a friendly enemy, meaning that the enemy of your enemy is your friend. Hamas and Islamic Jihad are the same problem that Israel have. I want, I want distinguish between them even after the last uh, round. Hamas is a terror organization. They are ruling Gaza. They are responsible for almost every bad thing that happened to the people inside Gaza. And Jihad is another terror organization, sometimes worse, sometimes worse. But what I'm saying is because Hamas didn't join the party this time, I won't make Hamas something else. It's the same problem, it remains, and on the next round, they will be part.
And I would just remind listeners that, you know, this isn't the only time that we've seen conflict among Palestinian parties. And the tendency always is to think that the, the, the more radical one is the bad guy and then the least radical one are the moderates. Uh, this is a false binary. Uh, they are both radical in this case, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, much as we saw a conflict between Hamas and the PLO. It's not like there is a real moderate among them there either. Um, and it's just an interesting thing to watch the internal politics uh, among the Palestinians. Uh, they typically agree on the destruction of Israel. They typically agree on violence to that aim but sometimes decide to sit things out or at least tactically take another approach. Well, these Palestinian groups are often our, our allies, but they're often rivals at the same time, which is a hard thing for us to quite understand. Um, it's interesting, and I, think the, and I think we know why, that Hamas tolerates the existence of Palestinian Islamic Jihad. I think it's because it also looks to Iran for funding and support, though it is less obedient uh, to the Islamic Republic of Iran than Islamic Jihad is. But as you point out, you wrote a whole book about this, really. Uh, the other ally rival to uh, Hamas is Fatah, which is the main faction in the Palestinian Authority. And in 2007, they went to war, not a metaphorical war, a real war, not very well covered by the media, by the way. Um, and when the blood dried and the smoke cleared, it was Hamas that was in charge of Gaza. And as a result, the Palestinian Authority president, Mahmoud Abbas, doesn't dare set his foot on Gazan soil. And the only thing that I would just add to that is um, that there is a possibility for other conflicts to erupt in the Gaza Strip. In other words, we could see Pidge and Hamas square off uh, over these tactical disagreements. We've heard of Salafi groups that also are challenging Hamas, not because one is more moderate than the other, but because this is really a Machiavellian uh, a struggle for control over the Gaza Strip. It's a lawless place, and we can. I think we, we should expect to see continued violence there among these factions, even as their war against Israel continues, and there is not a moderate among them. The other interesting thing here we should mention, of course, and some of our listeners will know this, some may not, Hamas is, of course, Sunni. A Palestinian Islamic Jihad is Sunni. Hezbollah, of course, is Shia. And part of what the Islamic Republic of Iran, obviously Shia-dominated, jihadi, is trying to do is say there is a cause that unites the Sunnis and the Shia if they are radical, if they are Islamist, if they are jihadi. And that cause is the defeat and destruction of Israel. And they see that as, as the bridge between these two sects that have been in conflict for 1,400 years, essentially. It's amazing because you really described it correctly, but you know, even inside these organizations, just if you add to the equation ISIL, what they are saying, they are extreme here. And they are saying that the modest Muslims are worse than the Jewish. Meaning if you are a Muslim and you are not really strict right. Muslim, then you are going to be dead even That's right. Before. You're an apostate, exactly. you're a heretic, etc. And so of it's course, a, it's crazy. It's crazy. Would you hold ISIL or the Islamic State or ISIS split from Al Qaeda? Oh, again, yeah. it was another case of this rivalry. This is not, you know, this is not guys who get along awfully well together. But, uh, but, but yes, some, some were calling Al Qaeda more moderate. <laughs> some <laughs> people were, and that's a, well, that's this, a Western misunderstanding. If you are that, that, because moderation is not what you're talking about, and we see it also in terms of the Islamic Republic of Iran. There are different strategies for how to achieve death to Israel, death to America. That doesn't mean that someone like 
Hassan Rouhani is a moderate. That's not what he is. He may be more patient. He may be more strategic. He may be a lot of things. But moderate is really not the right word, but that's a misunderstanding by the West. Uh, it's, it's projectionism in a way. The biggest misunderstanding, and this is why I don't like the use of the word frenemy, is that people say, look, Iranians are okay. They are fighting with us against ISIL, right. against ISIS. So they became part of our friends. Why we are fighting the Iranians? Why we are uh, preventing them? Why we are sanctioning them? The Iranians, while they are fighting against ISIS, it, it was because of it was their interest. But they remain even more extremist than the uh, ISIL. I say there is only one big difference between ISIL and uh, Iran is that when ISIL said caliphate now, the uh, Iranians say imam later, meaning the Iranian is like the shvoye, shvoye, we have time, we are not in a hurry. It's okay for us that everyone will be in our position, in our way in 10 years, yeah. not in five, in five days. But they didn't, it, it's not making them belonging to the right party of the world. Now, I want to move from this because there's there, the, the, the fact that Hamas did not fight nonetheless has some strategic importance, not least to someone like you who is trying to think of the next war and the larger war. Because from the point of view of Tehran, you would like to think that any of the groups that are answerable to you will, on your command, go ahead and fight Israel. You would like to think that if, there's, that if and when the next big war comes with Israel, Hezbollah will be involved. Hamas will attack, Palestinian Islamic Jihad will attack, all the Shia militias you've organized will attack. I mean, we can see, you can see, you've, done, you've discussed this, you've written about this, that there is an effort on the part of the Islamic Republic of Iran to, be, to expand the number of fronts Israel will have to fight on in the next war or the war after that. And of course, the Israelis have responded fairly vigorously to Tehran's attempts to set up forward operating bases, military bases, particularly in Syria, that could take part in a next war, which, and this is, gets complicated, but I know you explain it, which will not be, as the war in 2006 was, a war only against Hezbollah. It'll be a war against Hezbollah, against Lebanon, because Hezbollah is spread throughout Lebanon. It'll be a war against whatever bases are in Syria as well. And maybe Gaza gets involved, maybe Maybe it doesn't. I don't think we know. Depends what, what what their capabilities are, and that's what you're looking at. I know is the next war a multi a multi front war that Israel is now preparing for, which will be very different from other wars. And I don't think people necessarily understand how different it will be. You're totally correct, and you move from the uh, last round in Gaza to the multi front war. And again, I want to emphasize that Iran. Uh, invested billions of dollars in Lebanon only in one interest that they have. They wanted them to be the proxy. They wanted them to be the front against Israel when Iran will need it. This is why when Hezbollah started to help the Syrian against the rebels, uh, Iran was frustrated because they said, we gave you this ammunition in order to fight our war against Israel, not to help the Syrian. At the end, they became also involved, so it became okay, and they joined ends together. Iran is the one that really calls the shots in the Middle East, and in the next 
war that you uh, correctly called it the multi-front war, there is not going to be the second Lebanon or the third Lebanon war. It will be the northern uh, war, meaning Lebanon and Syria together. Is Gaza going to join it or not? I'm not sure, but when it will happen, we'll understand that Gaza is a burden, is a something that, you know, a mosquito that uh, disturbs you, but... The real war, if it will happen, will be with the Northern Command because of the number of ammunitions. And we are working very hard to make sure that the next generation of ammunition, uh, like the precise guided munitions, those that Iran is trying to produce inside Lebanon or Syria or to forward it from Iran via Syria to Lebanon, this is something that can be, we called it a game changer, But everyone understand now what is the meaning of precise guided munition that can, can eat a critical target in Israel in a precise meters uh, and cause a very, very, very devastating damages. So I think when we talk about this multi-front war that may be coming, ultimately, I think there will be one. Um, it, I think it's important to remember historically that um, these kinds of wars have been Israel's finest hours. They've also been uh, the, the moment where they have potentially even faced collapse. You think about the 1967 war, multi-front war, and this was Israel's greatest victory. And then think about 1973, where uh, you know Arab enemies were on Israel's doorstep, both in Syria and in Egypt, and, and were threatening to potentially uh, collapse the country and, and conquer it. So uh, Israel does have to be um, in, in a constant state of readiness uh, for, for this next conflict. The things that we're working on right now here, uh, I think, are probably worth noting because we're beginning to see um, the contours of the Iranian strategy for this next conflict. Mm. One is that they've established this um, contiguous land bridge across the Levant, stretching from Iran through Iraq, through Syria, through Lebanon, all with the idea of connecting roads and byways so that they can bring heavy weaponry to the front with Israel uh, and to be able to use the militias that it has stationed in these places to also potentially fire rockets. And point out these militias are often comprised of Shia, but not from Iran, but from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, from Uzbekistan. These are sort of mercenary armies that have been recruited by the Islamic Republic of Iran for these purposes. They get certain rewards, including maybe settling on Syrian land that once where that was once was a Sunni village is now a village for Uzbeki Shia. This is uh, something, again, something else that the anti-colonialists and the anti-imperialists in the international community sort of turn a blind eye to. The Russians also have now in Syria a door to the Mediterranean. They are not going to give it up. You know, in, in a paradoxical way, this is something that maybe will be okay at the end because when Russia is there, they are very much annoyed by the fact that the Iranians also wanted, and I'm sure that everyone uh, understands and, and uh, read about it, that the Russians st uh, was the ones that denied the Iranians to build their own uh, navy base in Syria. Without the Russians, probably there were already an uh, Iranian naval base in Syria. So this land bridge from Iran to Syria 
it's a threat. We look at that at that uh, land bridge, and and certainly the U.S. has a role to play in trying to disrupt it, uh, potentially by maintaining troops, but also in exposing the, the the overall plan that Iran has. And of course, the Israelis continue to take out targets, even if they don't always claim credit for it. We know of at least 250 times where they have taken credit for these strikes up until now. But what they're strikes trying to- from the air at targets inside Syria, then the targets were essentially new bases that the Iranians were trying to create for another war with Correct. Israel. Correct, and make sure people and, get that. And Iraq as well, which um, you know, which is you know, that, that's that's not a close by target. Um, that's not on Israel's doorstep. That's that's a bit further away. But absolutely, striking at bases, personnel, and weaponry. But the the thing that we're now really uh, focused on. And this is something that Jacob just mentioned, which is this PGMs, this precision guided munitions. What Hezbollah wants to do, what Iran wants to do in particular, is to make sure that the dumb rockets that they've been firing um, that often miss their mark, that they now have uh, more accurate capabilities. Um, they, with uh, not a lot of money, they can add uh, technology to ensure that these rockets are guided, that they can be steered. And this will have the effect of overwhelming Iron Dome, which is this defense, missile defense system that has been incredibly successful at these sort of dumb rockets. So what uh, what Iran is trying to do right now is to close in on Israel and then also to provide its proxies with as much devastating firepower and accurate firepower as possible in preparation for this next round. And that is what Israel is trying to defend against uh, and to preempt. This question and this discussion brings us, I think, the war between wars. Now, when we are talking about this war between wars, it really comprises of a lot of uh, parameters, a lot of uh, pieces. It's intelligence, it's uh, cyber attacks, it's, uh, it's uh, kinetic attacks, it's soft attacks, it's software, it's changing the perception, it's everything. It's a lot of things together that all together is building a campaign built on a common strategy. Without this war, we would be now in a situation that we have a permanent residence of Iran in Syria and a full arsenal of precise guided munitions in Hezbollah and in Lebanon aimed against Israel, changing totally this war that I agree with Jonathan that will happen. The question is not if, the question is when and what will happen and who will be much, much more ready. Jacob, how is this concept of war between wars different from a Cold War? Oh, this is a very nice question. The Cold War have some of the uh, ingredients that the war between war had. But remember that the Cold War didn't come to uh, parts of, I call it, kinetic world, war. During the Cold War, everyone was preparing himself to the war that will come later or will not come later because of the mutual deterrence between the parties in the Cold War. But during the Cold War, it was a cold. No one was sending missiles against the other one. No one was uh, sending bombs against the other one. Well, proxies were fighting. Sometimes proxies were fighting, but when you say Cold War, usually you are meaning that everyone was having an arsenal of nuclear uh, weapons, of uh, sophisticated weapons, making sure that he's going to deter the other side. And the Cold War was spice, SIGINT, humint, visint, 
there was no cyber then, but there was cyber. No one called it cyber. It was a computer uh, warfare. Everyone was trying to steal the other side's secrets. Everyone was trying to put uh, spies in the other, the other one, the territories. But it was not, if, for example, you take the Cold War between Russia and the United States, you didn't see missiles going from one side to another one, eating targets or killing bases or preventing the other one from building new uh, positions. This is the biggest difference. In the war between wars, you are trying to do it under the radar, trying to keep yourself the uh, capability of deniability if you want. I call it the secret one, the silence one. There is the noisy one, there is the covered one, and there is the silent. The silent meaning you are doing things that no one knows. And when they are happening, you don't know when they started. I mean, one interesting thing is that Israelis understand they're never going to be entirely at peace. They don't expect that. It would be nice if that could happen, but it's not. They're going to be sometimes at war, sometimes preparing for war. Things can be quiet. They use the word quiet. They talk to the with Hamas. We'll have quiet for quiet. That's all we expect. We're not going, we're going to get more than that. Americans, not all, but quite a few on both the left and the right have this idea that, oh, no, the natural state of America, the natural state of man is one of peace and war is an aberration that happens sometimes. And, yeah, that's why we either, you know, have guys in uniform drilling for the time when that comes. This whole idea that, no, it's, a, it's, it's mostly a gray situation. We have trouble with that, don't we, Jonathan? We we do, and and you know I I, I recall uh, President Barack Obama talking about aggression as a 19th century or 18th century behavior, when this is the kind of behavior that we've seen for centuries on end, and 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 will continue to. I mean, we always talk about history. History is a is the story of wars, one war after another, and unfortunately, Israel is in a position where it is continually making its own history uh, as it defends itself. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, th- I think Israel's position is hard for uh, for Westerners to understand. I think also the reason why Israel continues to survive is because of a fierce sense of nationalism, which also, I think, in this day and age is also hard for Westerners to understand, so- as well as we see a decline in nationalist sentiment. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think Israel finds itself in a, in a difficult position. But one thing I just wanted to add as we talk about the Cold War I, I do find some striking similarities between what's happening in Israel's north to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, that basically, Israel is now facing its own Cuban Missile Crisis. It's not nuclear weapons, but as Jacob noted, uh, with enough of these PGMs firing at certain targets, it could have the impact of a nuclear weapon. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this uh, precision project that Iran has undertaken. I think the difference right now is that uh, the Israeli leadership has not yet sounded the alarm. I don't think they've made it clear to the world what the dangers are and perhaps what is necessary for Israel to do in order to face this threat. And I actually think that if Israel's smart, it would raise this at the U.N. now, at least warn the world what is going to happen in preparation for the conflict that is likely to come. You know, maybe I live in Israel and I'm sitting inside those meetings still sometimes in the IDF, in the government, and maybe... Jonathan is right and the world doesn't understand. But if you look on the list of the sweats, it was just published again. It used to be once very classified, now it's out. What are the main concerns? What are the main risks 
זה the IDF is preparing himself for the next uh, 5 to 10 years uh, annual plan. The Prime Minister was talking about it, the Chief of Staff was talking. Number one is the Iranian nuclear threat. Number two, very close to it, is the precise guided munitions. Only number three is coming, you are going to Gaza and the terrorists and others. So the main two uh, risks that Israel is going to face and prepare itself for is, of course, the nuclear threat that the Iranians are still threatening to uh, annihilate and, and eliminate Israel. And the second one, very close to it, is the precise guided munitions. So this is why we are putting so much efforts in this uh, war between war. Now, you said before, and it reminded me, some people in the world are calling this war between war the gray zone war, because it's not really a war, it's a gray zone. But sometimes it's a gray zone that is a real world, real war, because it's really dealing with some of the most important and dangerous threats that we are facing. Hezbollah is inside Lebanon, retaliating Israel from Lebanon. Lebanon will suffer infrastructure, bridges, oil, uh, uh, water, bridges, everything will go and uh, nothing will be protected. And the second thing is that someone that is sending those uh, terrorists will not be protected in his own country, meaning that the next time when Hezbollah will retaliate against Israel, the Prime Minister said in his own words, the dispatcher, the patron, Iran, they cannot be sure again that, okay, we are sending our proxies, we are setting our boots on the ground, and we can continue rest in peace. This is not going to happen in the next conflict. And I don't say that it will, Israel will retaliate kinetics against Iran. Iran understands, Lebanon understands, Hezbollah understands. But you're not ruling This that is, out. I'm not ruling it, it out. I'm saying that in the next war, as you said before, it's not going to be the same as the old one. Right. It's, all, it's going to be another game. And Israel has the capabilities to strike back not just against the proxies of the Islamic Republic of Iran, but against the patron, the Islamic Republic of Iran, the ruling mullahs themselves, where they live and where they work in Tehran. That capability exists. Can I ask you that? This, you said so. Okay. Of course, I cannot deny or approve what you are saying, but I'll just go back on the sentence that our prime minister likes to say. Israel knows how to protect itself by itself, and without any help from other, from other. And if we are saying that if the patron and the dispatcher will be punished, meaning the one that is saying so knows that he have the capabilities or the means to do it. All right, I'm going to ask a couple of quick questions because we're low on time. I'd ask for quick answers. One, the Islamic Republic of Iran attacked recently. Saudi Arabia attacked its nuclear, not its nuclear, its, uh, its oil f- facilities. Uh, it was a, it was a pre- Very precise attack. Can I ask you, did Israel learn anything about Iran's capabilities it didn't know before that? Uh, Israel learned about several things about intelligence. We knew about those capabilities of the drones and of the so-called cruise missiles. Uh, Israel, is, Israel is not Saudi Arabia. We have system to uh, protect ourselves. David Link, Iron Dome. You mentioned before that Iron Dome can be devastated by the uh, precise guided munitions. Iron Dome can deal with those systems also with, of course, less uh, precise less capabilities. The area, the cover area will be much shorter, but we have to enhance and develop 
new capabilities to those systems in order to deal with cruise missiles and those special uh, threats. I'm not saying that we don't have it now. Uh, I uh, am sure that if an attack like the attack that uh, happened against Saudi was against Israel, the outcome would be different. Another quick question. Uh, does Israel right now have what's called QME, qualitative military edge, a qualitative military edge against any combination of adversaries, even if those adversaries included Hezbollah, Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Iran, and in Turkey as well. Does Israel nonetheless have a qualitative military uh, I, edge? I, I want to leave Turkey outside, but again- well, but, uh, but for planning purposes, yes. <laughs> there are always contingencies one shouldn't- You are, uh, you are right. QME is something that according to the American laws, the Congress and the Senate, have to make sure that Israel will keep its QME against its adversaries. I think we have uh, this uh, capability and this uh, qualitative edge now. We have to make sure that we are keeping it all the time. It's a continuous, another parameter or another uh, view of a war, but it's another kind of a war, to keep our uh, qualitative military edge all the time there. So my final question is this. What more should the U.S. or could the U.S. do that's in its own interest as well as in, in, in Israel's interest that, that would make Israel stronger against common enemies? And the, you know what I'm asking you, I think. Yeah, this it's is a, a shopping list question, essentially. You, you want a quick answer yeah. of something that I can talk now for more than, for more than an hour and a, and, and a separate uh, podcast. But there are a lot of ways that we can enhance the cooperation between the United States and Israel. It's a development of a very sophisticated R&D systems together. Is, and I'm really glad that the United States decided to buy two Iron Dome uh, batteries and they are now looking for maybe to the, to the enduring solution for the army to buy maybe 30 more. Just assume that the United States have Iron Dome and maybe in the future David's link and we can, for example, take some of those American systems and they can put them in Israel in order to use them for the American uh, needs to protect their uh, 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 soldiers and, and forces around the Middle East, around other places. But we can share the doctrine. We can share the, uh, the ideas. We can share the use of those systems together. This is just one way of thinking. There are a lot of ways of Uh, evolving our cooperation with the United States, we think the same, we have the same uh, set of values, the United States and Israel. And this is why when we signed this MOU that you just mentioned before, uh, Susan Rice, that was my counterpart then, said this is exactly the kind of uh, uh, paper that presents a win-win-win situation. Everyone wins. It's for the benefits of the United States, and for the benefit of the state of Israel, uh, the enhancing of the cooperation between the United States yeah. and Israel. Part of what I'm saying is, yes, I understand the Israelis, they know what threats they face and, and, and they work on these every, every day. Um, there are protests taking place recent days in Lebanon, for example, about the economic mismanagement and the corruption of the political class, which is led by Hezbollah. And that's an important point as well. What I'm not sure they're entirely aware of is if Hezbollah gets and Iran gets Lebanon into another war with Israel, how devastating that will be 
to Lebanon. I don't know if they realize the danger they are in, and I'm not sure the world recognizes the danger they are in. No question, Israel will be blamed no matter what Israel does if it tries to protect itself from hundreds of thousands of missiles, including those that are precision-guided coming from Lebanon. But I think Jonathan is making an important point. I don't expect, after all this time, people to be sympathetic to the dangers Israel faces. I think if they understood that Lebanon could be in danger of a just the most devastating, something like in Syria, they might not be so happy about that. And maybe, hard to believe, but maybe they'd actually do something at the UN and other parts of the international community to prevent this eventuality. Jonathan, let me let you just jump in there. Yeah, and, 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 you know, the other thing, I think that's right, and I think people might be more concerned when they think about what this might lead to. Um, You know, and we're talking about kinetic action on the part of Israel, but let me just raise a point here, which is that this, we don't need necessarily to go down that road. There are opportunities that have presented themselves in the last few weeks that are nothing short of remarkable if we're trying to disrupt Iran's plans, disrupt Iran's land bridge. We have protests that have erupted and that are threatening Hezbollah rule uh, in Lebanon. We have protests that have erupted in Iraq and are protesting Iran's stranglehold in that country. And then protests in Iran itself, where which is potentially threatening the rule of the mullahs. So there is an opportunity here for the West to the extent that we want to try to provide assistance, coordination, communication. There could be ways to try to head this off before it gets to the point uh, where Israel is forced to take kinetic action. And I think, um, you know, we're so in, in this country, we're so focused on getting out of the Middle East, not being involved. But here you have a real opportunity, probably the best opportunity that we've seen since the Green Revolution in 2009, where the United States turned its back on, on people that were standing up to, uh, to the regime in Tehran. Here we have an opportunity to address that mistake and perhaps even go back and revisit it. And uh, I, I would just encourage us now to be thinking about the opportunities that we have. A second chance, really, to and, and also a chance to prevent the kind of devastating conflagration that we're speaking of that Iran is pushing towards. I'm always amazed when I go to Israel to see this small country surrounded by enemies and Israelis drink and eat and live and enjoy their lives, but understanding that they have to be at all times defending their country and prepared to defend their country in times of war and in times of near war. So thanks to you, Jacob Nagel. Thanks to you, Jonathan Shanzer. And thanks to all of you who have been with us here again on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.